The Lord be with you. Oh, we are out of practice. The Lord be with you. That's what I like to hear. It is good to be with you all this morning. It has been far too long since we have been together, and we are very excited to be starting a new year of Sunday school. Uh, this is this whole year will stretch out, and we will cover one big topic. And you're saying, how can we just do one topic? Well, there's lots of little subtopics, right? This year is saints and sinners. And uh, today was going to be the introductory week, but that will be next week because uh, Rabbi Adland, who is very gracious to be here today, thank you for being here, uh, he is needed next week to help build the, the sukkah over at the temple. So he said, could we switch? Is it possible? So I said, yes, they'll understand. So this is week two. Next week, you'll get week one. You'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Um, some adjustments. That's right. COVID adjustments. Uh, while uh, Once you are finished here, uh, you're invited to take a peek. There are some new pictures in the back corner there. Uh, we've been working on scanning several of the oldest pictures that we have and, enlarge and getting enlargements done. As well, we have some books from the 50s, 60s there. There's a whole lot more in the archives, but you might recognize some folks in those two books that are open there on the, on the, on the table. And those oldest pictures, um, I wonder if you can figure out. Here's a challenge for today. Figure out where that picture on the left is taken. Good luck. So um, uh, before we uh, welcome Rabbi Adlin to talk about uh, the beginning of our heroes from the temple to the rabbis, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for an opportunity to be in this place to learn together about how you have loved us through the generations, how you have been God for us. You've called us, you've accompanied us, you've been alongside us, and there are so many saints through the ages that we can learn from, how you have been in their lives and, and you can be in our lives. Help us through all that we learn today and through this upcoming year to look up to heroes of faith, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Rabbi, we are so excited you are here. Is it Please. working? Oh, it's, it's working. working. Yay. So thank you. Thank you, Reverend Wallace, for inviting, uh, inviting me. Um, he had this all worked out like a year ago and says, would the three rabbis come and teach? And here we, we sort of he gave the sort of the idea and each of us came up with a topic. And then when I looked down at my calendar, I said, I can't be there on the 19th <laughs> because one of my jobs at Temple is to build the sukkah along with, with some help. One of my hobbies is woodworking. So um, they, need, they needed my quote unquote expertise to be able to get it up. So he was gracious to flip this and so it may be a little out of order but I am really just the setup for the two smart rabbis who come after me. <laughs> uh, Rabbi Spitzer I think will be here in two weeks and then um, you're going to be absolutely delighted to meet our newest rabbi, Rabbi Komorowski. My only struggle with him is that he's funnier than me <laughs> and, and, I, and it's just not, not fair because I was the funny rabbi until he came. He's got great wit, he's brilliant, um, and I'm sure whatever he is teaching that day, you will absolutely enjoy it. 
So um, I'm glad you can hear me with my mask. I'm wearing it, <clears throat> one, obviously, to protect us all. And also, my grandson came over Labor Day weekend and decided to leave a little of himself behind. So my wife and I have now been struggling with whatever it is that grandsons leave for you. Uh, and uh, today's, yesterday was the first day that I really started feeling better. So our topic, which was up on the screen a minute ago, <laughs> it, it went off, um, is uh, what Reverend Wallace wanted to do is sort of t he was to talk about those, those early rabbis who mean so much to uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish world. Um, but what I wanted to do was set up how we got to them to make sure you understand where they come from in order to be able to get an idea of why we hold them in such reverence for their wisdom. So um, where we're going to start is actually back with something that you all may or may not be familiar with. We're going to start with uh, Jesus railing against the temple because we've got to begin as close to the beginning as we can. And you know from uh, reading in, your, in, uh, in the New Testament that Jesus does not leave the temple in great high regard. He is, says a lot of things, some right, some uh, we could argue about at another point in time. Um, but we're going to start with that in a, in a second. I'm going to move to a passage. So... Um, the temple, there have been two temples. The first temple uh, was built at the end of the um, ninth century. Did I got that right? End of the 10th century um, by Solomon. David, King David, wanted to build the temple. He had this great desire to be able to move the Holy Ark from uh, where it was located up on into, the, into the temple. He had brought it from, um, from one point to, to, uh, to Hebron, and it was sitting there, and he wanted to bring it up, and he was told that he couldn't, he couldn't build it. He couldn't build it because he had made too many uh, forced errors in his life, some pretty severe, and uh, his prophet Nathan said, this is it. God just doesn't want you to do this. David accepted that and left it to his son Solomon. So the first temple was really Solomon's temple, built in the same place that the second temple was built, built which are both of them are built where the, um, the Dome of the Rock more or less sits today. I can't tell you if it's always the exact spot, but I can tell you it's, it's pretty close. Um, when I was, lived in Jerusalem, and I used to be able to just walk up onto the Temple Mount. You can't really do that as easily anymore. I could go up there anytime I wanted. You could go into the Dome of the Rock, and inside the Dome of the Rock is a big rock that comes out of the ground. It's supposedly where um, Abraham uh, took Isaac to sacrifice him. It's supposedly where, in a dream, Muhammad went up into heaven. So that, that is in the center of the Dome of the Rock. It's, it's just the top of really what they think the mountain was, and everything was built, uh, built around it. It's hard to get up there today. The other thing about the temple, the temple was a really our sacri was the sacrificial system, and I know that sometimes that makes people very uncomfortable, but this is how they prayed in the days of the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures. This is how they offered their uh, thanks and um, their prayers to God was through the sacrificial system. So the temple was really critical. Aaron and his descendants and his family were the ones that ran the priesthood. 
And it's sort of like if you have Moses and Aaron who were brothers, one was the secular, one was the religious. Aaron had the responsibility for that. And it's, we could spend an entire semester just trying to understand that connection and understanding Aaron's role in the priesthood and all of the comp complications that that brought. But in general, that's how it divided out. Um, there is also the first temple was destroyed in the year 586. So how did this come about? Some, as I said, some of you may be aware of this, but if you're not, it, this is always good to review. So um, first, after Solomon died, the, the, uh, the Canaanite, Palestine, whatever this area is, was divided into two, two different nations, the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Israel. The northern nation existed for a while, and then the Assyrians came and captured uh, all of that territory and removed many of the citizens from the northern part of Israel. It was there for a couple hundred years, down to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was able to fortify the city of Jerusalem and, after the, and was able to hold off the Assyrians with a little bit of help of God, according to the, the, the Bible. But um, when it was done, Israel was really quite tiny. It was basically the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That was, all that, that was all that was left. Though when you read the text, it seems like it was this mighty, far-reaching, amazing empire. If you look at a map, it was just a little bit of, of land that they held on to. And yet this is the story that we get. And that was about 722 when the northern kingdom was destroyed, and about 140 years later, the southern kingdom was destroyed by the Babylonians. But what happened at that destruction was really important because uh, where the Assyrians took the captives and spread them all out, all over the, the Assyrian empire, the Babylonians took them back to Babylonia and they were allowed to be together. They were allowed to live together. They were allowed to continue being, even though the word Jewish wasn't around yet, Jewish together. They were allowed to long together and pray together, whatever it is they wanted to do. <coughs> and um, eventually, uh, about 60 years after that, uh, the Persians had captured the Babylonians and the Persians allow a small part of the Jewish community, those who really wanted to, to go back to the land of Israel. And, to, and he, they gave him permission to rebuild the temple. Now, this wasn't the temple that eventually gets uh, built magnificently by Herod, but it was the same temple. It was a pretty, from as far as we know, a pretty terrible-looking building, but it, it's, it sufficed. Okay. <clears throat> and, um, uh, and that's what they had. They had that for a long while. Uh, interestingly enough, and this actually plays into a very much later part of the talk, um, many of the Jews chose to stay in Babylonia. So there was a presence of Jews in Babylonia, which eventually becomes Iraq, uh, for almost 2,500 years until they were kicked out. A long, glorious presence. My uh, son's wife, my daughter-in-law, her family was from Mosul and left in around 1950 when they were told they had to leave and came and went to Israel at that point. So then they could probably trace their family line back generations upon generations living there. So the destruction of the first temple brought about the Book of Lamentations. It brought, a, brought about a, uh, uh, 
uh, a day of mourning called Tishba Av, the ninth day of the month of Av. Um, and they come back, they rebuild the, they rebuild the temple. You get, now you get the books of Ezra and Nehemiah who talk about this, about the rebuilding of the temple, about the reinstitution of the reading of the Torah, the five books of Moses. Eventually, there's, there's also this period that happens there that there's no historical knowledge. About 100, 120, 130 years. We know nothing about it. There's nothing written. There's no uh, primary sources. There are no secondary sources. The Jewish community was tiny. It just sort of existed in that part of the, of the world until the Greeks arrive. And when the Greeks arrive, led by Alexander, um, and we'll get to this a little bit later, the, uh, the, the, the overview is, is that he really allows them to be who they are, but eventually Alexander dies, things happen later, and you get the story of Hanukkah, which is, revolves around the, around the temple. Um, later you get the corruption of the priesthood, which is what Jesus is talking about, and the destruction of the temple. Following that, this is all what I'm going to sort of, uh, we're going to go through this slowly. Then you get a guy named Yochanan ben Zakkai. Interestingly enough, Rabbi Kamarowski mentioned him on Friday night in his sermon. He's a critical figure because he helps save the, um, the religious aspect of Jewish life during the destruction of the second temple. And we'll come to that. And then we get the pairs of rabbis, the schools of rabbis, and things like that. So let us move forward, because time is going to run out on me, to something that you all... Oops, I forgot. i got to go this way. All right, so let's go back to the beginning of this whole thing. Let's go back to where... Um, and I, I don't use the inter new international version because I am partial to it, it's the one when I typed in what I was looking for that came up that I could copy and paste. I really don't know much of the difference of all of these, the text. I'll let you guys argue about that. <clears throat> so that reads, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So, when you hear this particular text, or when you read this text, do you guys actually read this text, or did you just skip? Okay, when you, because I know that you don't read every single part of it, as I've learned from studying with my uh, Christian minister friends. When you read that, what, what is it that it's saying to you? What do you read? He was angry. Jesus was angry? Yeah. What else? Comment, put, just raise your hand, and I'll come around with the mic. So there were folks cheating. Uh -huh. the, the people yeah. that were selling, the money changers, were cheating. They were shorting the people that were coming in trying to get their uh, merchandise. Okay. For their so there was, there was corruption. Jesus was angry. Um, and he really wanted a revolution. He wanted it to, wanted, he really wanted the, the temple to return to the way it had been. Of course, if they had done that, you guys wouldn't exist as a religion. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, uh, so, 
the temple, but the thing is that the temple was not always a corrupt institution. It wasn't. Uh, it was the center of the life for the Israelite people, and at this house of God, the people always found ways to connect with God. Uh, there we go. Wait There we go. So there's a picture, a rendering of what the temple, the first temple may have, may have looked like. Um, and this is the one that David was not permitted to build, but this is the one that, that um, Solomon built. So from 2 Samuel, or as some people would say, 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 7, said, when the king was settled in his place and Adonai had granted him safety from all the enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, here I am dwelling in a house of cedar while the ark of Adonai abides in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go and do whatever you have in mind for Adonai is with you. But that night the same word of Adonai came to Nathan, go and say to my servant, thus said Adonai, are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? From the day I brought the people out of Israel, of Israel out of Egypt to this day, I have not dwelt in a house, but have moved about in tent and tabernacle. As I moved about, whenever the Israelites, wherever the Israelites went, did I ever reproach any of the tribal leaders whom I appointed to care for my people Israel? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Further, say, uh, thus say to my servant David, <clears throat> thus said Adonai of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the flock to be a ruler of my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut down all your enemies before you. Moreover, I will give you a, gr a great renown like that of the greatest men on earth. I will establish a home for my people Israel and will plant them firm so that they shall dwell secure and tremble no more. Evil men shall not oppress them anymore as in the past, ever since I appointed chieftains over my people Israel. I will give you safety from all your enemies. All right. And then it finishes, Adonai declares to you that God, Adonai, will establish a house for you. When your days are done you, and you lie with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own issue, and I will establish his kingship. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. So um, go to the next, the next slide. We're not going to, this is just from Chronicles where it actually says that Solomon is going to be the one uh, to do that. So what was the role of the, the temple? So the role of the temple had three main things. One was sacrifice was prayer. Two, smoke was a pleasing odor to God. You read that over and over again in the text. And sacrifice was about thanksgiving, praise, and repentance. Those three things. Same things we do in our prayers today. But they did it through the offering of animals or grains or different things. It wasn't only animals. That's what people always get the uh, little crazy about. There were animals that were sacrificed. And, um, but it wasn't just animals. People brought their offerings and their offerings were put on the altar and, and burned up. Though not limited to the book of Leviticus, much of the context for sacrifice is found in the book of Leviticus, you can read there, especially the first seven or eight chapters, um, and maybe even a little bit later in the book. But even as I said, the greatest of holy places gets destroyed. So let's see. Well, we went too far. One back. And here we have 
a rendering of the destruction of the first temple in the year 580-586 BCE. And Jeremiah, who was a witness of this, and eventually also not only is the book Jeremiah, but we also have the book Lamentations, he is the one that laments this. He's the one that sets up all of the text that it's really we have only ourselves to blame for the destruction of that. And he's the one when he writes Lamentations that he is so, she's so depressed over the destruction of this temple. But as I said, in, fi- in 532, we return to Jerusalem, and with the Persians' permissions, we, permission, we once again reestablish ourselves in Jerusalem as a people. Okay, let's see if we can get this thing. There we go. So in um, around 330 BCE, give or take a little bit there, Alexander comes to this part of the world. This is Alexander's route, if you can follow all of that. And you can see that he really never comes to Jerusalem. Um, he, go, he sort of bypasses it, and eventually you can see there's a little arrow up at the top that sort of has him heading, heading to the east. But he never comes. But the writers like to imagine that Alexander came. And that, um, and I could read you a very long portion, but we're not going to do that. They see him there. Um, uh, granting the Jewish people the ability to, to live their lives. And why did he do this? Because he understood that you don't have to take away people's religion just because you've conquered them. You can allow them to be able to celebrate and to worship. He didn't, have, he didn't believe that his religion had a monopoly, um, uh, his, his Greek religion. So he left the Jews, he left the Jews alone. What eventually happens... What eventually happens is that the Greek Empire divides into three parts. The two that are important to the Jewish world are the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies down in Egypt. Um, they don't like each other. And eventually the Ptolemies have control of, of, of Israel. Eventually the Seleucids conquer it. They've got a vast empire, a vast empire, but it's a very heterogeneous one and one in which they have to expend a lot of money to be able to control it. One of the places that they could look to money was in the temple in Jerusalem because the Jerusalem had a treasury and every year a Jew was obligated to give the equivalent of a half shekel to this, to this tax. So eventually he comes down. This is the story of Hanukkah now. He, Hanukkah. he captures the temple. He raids the treasury. He defiles the, uh, the sanctuary. The Jews of, uh, ri- rise up against uh, the Seleucid Empire and fight a war that actually goes on for quite a long time, but the, the significant part for the first three years they fight, led by Judah Maccabee and his brothers. They are able to recapture Jerusalem. They're able to drive the Greeks away from that and reestablish their religion. There we go. So here we got the story of the, the Hanukkah, the Maccabees, and the priesthood. And this is really where, even though it's way before Jesus, this is where the beginning of the story of Jesus' anger at the temple begins to come in. So yes, the, the Maccabees saved Judaism. And yes, the Maccabees are heroes. And yes, the Maccabees are also of the priestly class. So they could actually take their role as a high priest there. And yes, at Hanukkah, we love to get presents. But about 50 years into the Maccabees' leadership, there is corruption and murder and intrigue. And the priesthood begins, the high priesthood begins to be bought 
and sold. Instead of just being a uh, handed down from uh, father to son or house to house within that, it, begins, it becomes corrupt. The sacrifice is continued, but it isn't the same. And that this is what Jesus is talking about when he shows up. Hold on. So here is a depiction of the, the temple, the second temple that Herod built. You can go to Jerusalem, and I know that this, this congregation has gone with Rabbi Spitzer, and you can actually see this, this model of the second temple in Jerusalem. It used to be at the Holy Land Hotel, and now I think it is at the Israel Museum. Now, there's, it's not necessarily perfect because the guy who created this little piece by piece by piece, putting it all together, um, was working off of what he believed, not necessarily, obviously, any uh, pictures that were taken of it from there. But th you can see that the difference in the magnificence. This was one of the great wonders of the world when Herod built this temple. Um, but all good things come to an end. And in 70 CE, this temple was destroyed by the Romans, and the significance of the priesthood ends and the rabbinic era begins. Let me just... I mentioned a little while ago that there was a guy named Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Okay, so just a, one little thing. There were no people called rabbi before the temple was destroyed. It was not a title that was used. So sometimes I hear when I'm out in the community and I'm teaching to churches, people will call Jesus Rabbi Jesus or that Jesus was a rabbi. It, it couldn't have happened. There was nobody using that title at that particular time. It was not bestowed upon him. Even the two great ones that I think Rabbi Spitzer's talking about, Hillel and Shammai, were not called Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. They were just Hillel and Rabbi. This term, even from Yochanan ben Zakkai, doesn't come in until after these acts of the year 70. So what he does, is, and Rabbi uh, Kamarowski really set this up very nicely on Friday night. He said the Jewish people had two choices in the year 70. They could either go to Masada and die a great martyr's death, uh, a military death, or they could go with Yochanan ben Zakkai to a place called Yavna just a little town, and they could begin to recreate uh, Judaism without a temple. So this was the choice, really. I mean, it's not that everybody could go to Masada, everybody could go to Yavna, but this was the choice that we had. By the fact that Rabbi, everybody at Masada died, the choice that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made with his students to go there began to preserve Judaism began to give us these heroes that we look back on on today. He, what he did is he went to uh, the general in charge of the siege, got smuggled, the, the, the story goes, I, who knows? Story goes he was smuggled out in a coffin. And he goes and he says, you know, if you give me, um, well here, let me just read this. During the siege of Jerusalem in the first Jewish-Roman War. There were two Jewish-Roman Wars. The second one happens in the year 132. It tends to get looked over, bypassed by a lot of groups studying. 
He argued in favor of peace according to the Talmud, and we'll get back to that in a minute. When he found the anger of the besieged populace to be intolerable, he arranged a secret escape from the city inside of a coffin so that he could negotiate with Vespasian, who at that time was still just a military commander but was about to become the next emperor. Yochanan correctly predicted that Vespasian would become emperor and that the temple would soon be destroyed. In return, for the fact that Yochanan ben Zakkai, who he, why Vespasian would care about this guy, the fact that Yochanan ben Zakkai says that Vespasian was going to become emperor, Vespasian granted Yochanan ben Zakkai three wishes, the salvation of Yavna, its sages, and the descendants of Rabban Gamliel. And Gamliel becomes very critical as one of our great heroes, who was of the Davidic dynasty. And a, and a physician to treat Rabbi Tzadok, who had fasted for 40 years to stave off the destruction of Jerusalem. So he gets out, Vespasian says, sure, what, what difference is it in us? Take you and your students, go there, do what you want. We're interested in putting down this revolt against the Roman Empire. We're going to follow these rebels wherever they go. Three years later, Masada is destroyed. Yavna continues on. Yep, next one. So there's a great dramatic presentation of the destruction of the temple. Okay, the next slide. So I show you this picture because it's, it's really interesting. If you've been to um, Jerusalem and you've had a chance to go down to the Western Wall, this is the area a little south of that. So you see that mound of dirt in the back? If you cut, if that was cut down, just put away, and you moved along that, you would be where the Western Wall is today. But you're actually below that. Because where you are now is it's the old street level during the uh, Roman times. And not only you were at street level, but you see those, that uh, off to the left, you see those little rectangular openings? That's where the money changers used to be. When I was in Jerusalem in 1974, and they were beginning to open up, I went to there for my junior year of college. So at the, you see that there's sort of a line that ends up in the upper right-hand corner that's uh, horizontal. It's actually a drainage channel. And then if you go above all that green stuff, you'll see another sort of drainage channel way up at the top there. That's where, that's where I stood. That's where the, the earth was. They removed all of that earth to eventually get down to that. Now, just as a really cool thing, the last time I was there, when I took my last tour, you now can walk underneath that, which was the, um, the sewers that, that the people from during the destruction were able to use to try and escape. They've op they had opened it up in parts, but now you can go under the sewers all the way down to the bottom of David City. It is just, I'm sorry, just way cool. <laughs> um, there's all sorts of stuff they've opened up in David City. The steps that people used to walk from the, the pools at the bottom where they would immerse themselves, you can now walk on these steps, the exact same steps, 2,000-year-old steps, that they would have walked up to eventually get to this point where they could have then entered into the temple. But you didn't enter in from here. This is where the priests enter in. Um, you entered in sort of the wall goes, it's a corner there, and there were some steps that you would walk up to there. Those steps have been there for a long time. They've been exposed. Every group 
certainly Jewish group, but I imagine every group going to Israel eventually gets their group picture taken on those steps. So, all right. So, I know I got to keep moving. Got 10 minutes, right? Okay, good. 10.15. Okay. All right. So, what happens with Yochanan ben Zakkai? Let's get the next slide. Oh, wait a minute. Before you go, go back one. Those rocks that are falling up there, that's how they were, that's, those rocks have been in that pile since the destruction of the temple. That was what they found when they removed all the dirt, was that pile that had been pushed off of the top of the temple. That's the, the hole in the ground right there. That was from rocks smashing down during the d- destruction of the second temple. What? I mean, how did they push them off? The rocks, the, the, the walls were not built with concrete. They're laid one on top of the other. So you get, and you're on the inside pushing out, you get three or four people, two people, I don't know, some of the rocks, some of the, the, the stones are bigger than others, you can push. It, it's, it, it's probably, I'm probably minimizing how hard it is. There are some giant, giant stones that they use, but not all of them are giant stones. Um, you can see the squares there. On the other side, they fit perfect. Yeah, yeah. But you start at the top and you push, and you know they didn't knock down all of the wall. They just knocked down the stuff at the top, and it falls 80 feet or something down. And this is what you what you got. The 80 feet is 10 stories, so you can see how high that that was built. Um, once, it, just a quick digression. When I was there in the at my junior year in 1974-75, the best class I took at Hebrew University was the history and archaeology of uh, Jerusalem in the first and second temple periods by a guy named Levine. I'm blanking on his first name right now. They had just started the excavations down there. Remember, Israel only recaptured the city in 67. So way on the other side of the plaza, where the picture that you usually see of the Western Wall, um, they had begun to open up to dig into it. They knew that they could get inside. And you've now, it's way open now. You can walk, it's lit, there are paths, there's all sorts of stuff. When I went in there in 1974, 75, you had to stoop a lot of it. They had just begun to open it up. But now when you take, it's called the tunnel tour. When you take that tunnel tour, they sit you down in one place and there's a particular stone that they like to highlight that was about a ton. The question is, how did they get it there? So that's another story. <laughs> go, to, go to Israel, take the tunnel tour. If you haven't done that, it's absolutely worth it. All right, next slide. Uh, let's go to the next one. I already read you that. All right, so what happens next? This is really now moving from the temple to the rabbis and to our heroes. From Yohanan ben Zakkai in the year 70, to about the year 200, now we use, don't use the words AD or BC, we use BCE before the Common Era, and CE, the Common Era, so 70 uh, CE to 200 CE. Um, there was all sorts of pairs of rabbis um, who were discussing, trying to figure it all out. If you can see on that list, this actually takes you way back when you get to Hillel, uh, the elder, the second one down, 
Uh, that was during the reign of King Herod. You more or less know when that is. And you can see all of these individuals who were significant um, individuals. And when I read the text, which I'm going to talk about in a second, um, they're the names that come up. So they are part of what we call the Tanaim. They were the original thinkers. They were the ones who were saying, how do we create a Judaism without a temple? Now, it might seem odd, but if for a thousand years, all of Jewish life had been uh, focused around the sacrificial system and the temple is now gone, how do you have a, a religious system? What do you do to be able to create a new way? And Judaism is the only religion that I'm aware of that was able to go from a sacrificial system to a non-sacrificial system and still maintain its integrity and its continuity. So for those first 130 years, these individuals who are called the Tanaim began to talk and debate and discuss and try and figure it all out. Now, it actually started even prior to that. But we know in those 130 years, most of the conversation was going on. So let's, um, let's go, I'm not sure if it, try the next slide. I got to see what I put up there or not. Oh, those are just more of the, the rabbis. Keep going. These are the rabbis that come after that. All of these rabbis are mentioned in a text. One more. Okay. There's no way that this is what this guy actually looked like. That's like a 19th century description of somebody who lived, you know, 2,000 years earlier. So what did these guys do? They began to talk about how do you observe? How do you um, deal with civil laws? How do you deal with, with religious laws? They created something called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah uh, was what we call the oral law. <coughs> the oral law. That eventually becomes the non-oral law and gets written down, but it's still the oral law. According to tradition, on Mount Sinai, God gave two sets of laws. He gave the written law, which becomes the Torah, the five books of Moses. And he also gave to Moses the oral law, which is passed down from generation to generation to generation. This is Midrash. This is just trying to figure it all out. But we also know for hundreds of years, individuals were debating and discussing, well, when it says this in the Torah, how are we supposed to apply it? How are we supposed to observe it? How are we supposed to do it? So the Mishnah gets divided up into six orders. Um, one deals with prayers and blessings, one deals with festivals, one deals with laws concerning marriage and divorce, and some of the laws of, of taking oaths. Another one is a very cr uh, civil one, it's cr uh, called Nizikin, it deals with damages and criminal and civil law. Then you get to a, a, a one called Kodashim, holy things, and this is regarding the sacrificial system. And then finally, laws of purity. It was a guy in um, 200 named Judah Hanasi, and I'm always convinced that he used his grad students to put it together and to organize it. Okay, so it becomes the Mishnah. Um, once it's set down, the next big work comes about is interpreting it. Because uh, when you read the Mishnah, it doesn't necessarily um, make a lot of sense. So I have now, since um, early January of 2020, participated in something that is a seven and a half year cycle. Try that every day for seven and a half years. I'm only a year and a half into it. It's called Daf Yomi. 
It's a page of Talmud a day. In my inbox, I get an introduction written by somebody and then a link that takes me to that page. Uh, and I, I've been, somebody a few said a, little, a couple weeks ago, we've now finished 600 days. We only have six years to go. <laughs> so we are actually reading now in uh, the second order. The first order is very short, the one that deals with prayers and blessings. Not that prayers and blessings needs to be short, but it's only a, there's only a couple books in there. We've been, I've been reading in uh, the second one, Festivals, and we are, in, interestingly enough, reading about uh, Sukkah. It's not necessarily set up to be that way. Because the next time the seven and a half years finish, it'll start in September rather than starting in January, so it'll all be off. Um, but we've been, I've been reading about that every day. It's the first thing I did this morning. Well, that's not true. First I do the New York Times mini crossword. <laughs> then I do, <laughs> I gotta wake up a little before you start reading this stuff. And then I do, and then I do, uh, do this. So I'm gonna give you a little uh, sample of what this was about. That's supposed to be Junahana C. There's no way he looked like that. Anyways, <laughs> next slide. So this is from the tractate. So you have six orders. Each order has a number of tractates. That's like a book within a book. Um, in the, the one called Pesach or Passover, which I read several months ago. In fact, it, I think we finished it just before Passover. So that would have been sometime in the, in the spring. This was one of the little texts. Now, this is what I read from. So the dark print is the, what the actual text is. But what's really nice now is you actually get one with a running, not commentary, um, a running narrative in it, written by a guy named Adin Steinsalz, who died within the last year or so. So it makes it a little bit easier to read. So I'll sit down, and I'll, re and I'll read my introduction, and then I'll go to this, and, and I'll read this. It says, on the eve of Passover, adjacent to Mincha, Mincha's the afternoon prayers, Mincha time, a person may not eat until dark. So according to the, the, uh, the Talmud, um, from Mincha until you start your Seder, you don't eat. Um, it's according to this so that he will be able to eat matzah that night with a hearty appetite. So first of all, you want to be hungry, and also you want to have some separation between Passover when you eat unleavened bread and the rest of the, the year. Even the poorest of Jews should not eat the meal on Passover night until he reclines on his left side as, a free, as free and wealthy people recline when they eat. And the distributors of charity should not give a poor person less than four cups of wine for the festival meal of Passover, of Passover night. And this halakha applies even if the poor person is one of the poorest members of society and re receives his food from the charity plate. So you get it now with the narrative. Now let me just read it to you. First of all, it's in Aramaic. So Jesus could have read it. Rabbi Adlin, not so much. <laughs> Aramaic is hard. Try that after you finish reading, learning Hebrew. <laughs> um, so this is what it would sound like if you're just reading the text. These of Passover, Jason to Mincha, a person not eat until dark, even the poorest of Jews not eat until he reclines, and not give less than four cups of wine, and even, and, and even from the charity plate. Steins also has helped fill, fill this in. It makes it a lot, a lot easier to read today. Give you one more. Let's go to the next slide. 
This is one from Tractate Yoma, which we finished a little while ago, which is about Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, the day on which there is a... This, and Yom Kippur is this Wednesday night and Thursday. On Yom Kippur, the day on which there is a mitzvah by Torah law to afflict oneself, it is prohibited to engage in eating and in drinking and in bathing and in smearing oil on one's body and in wearing shoes and in conjugal relations. However, the king, in deference to his eminence and a new bride within 30 days of her marriage who wishes to look especially attractive at the beginning of her relationship with her husband, they may wash their faces on Yom Kippur. A woman after childbirth who is suffering may wear shoes because going barefoot causes her pain. This is the statement of Rabbi Eliezer. The rabbis prohibit these activities for a king, a new bride, and a woman after childbirth. So I can just tell you, just real quickly, that if, if when they say, and the rabbis prohibit, the law is according to them. If one man says this, but the rabbis, it always goes, goes to that. So this comes out of the Talmud. This is what, go back a few slides. Keep going. This is what these guys, the one before, these guys, one before that, these guys were all talking about. This is who, when I'm reading the Mishnah and the Talmud, but really just the Talmud with the Mishnah in it, um, these are the people who were setting down, who were trying to figure out how to create a Judaism without a temple. Because um, Yom Kippur, if you read the Talmud, um, was really about the sacrifices. And now they're talking about other things. Passover was about bringing the sacrifice and telling the story. And now you're talking about other things. So what I, I sort of jumped ahead. The Mishnah was the oral law. The commentary on the Mishnah is called the Gemara. You put those two together and you get what we call the Talmud. These guys, they all were, they all were guys except for, um, go forward one slide. About two-thirds of the way down, you see Rabbi Meir. His, his wife uh, was, one of the, uh, was one of the few women that's ever mentioned in the Talmud actually has a speaking voice, and it's not very long, but it, she is mentioned. That's pretty good. All right, go, go ahead on forward. All right. These people worked really hard to be able to create a system that would make, that make sense for us today. Um, so go forward a slide. Keep going. One more. So those are the six orders that I mentioned to you. Keep going. All right. That's what a page of Talmud looks like. Um, what's missing? Reverend? There are no vowels. <laughs> it's like the Torah. The Torah is written without vowels. There are no vowels. So you've got to figure out how to read this. Steinzels put the vowels in. It was very nice of him. So he has a text. But... One volume of this particular tractate, when you do it with him, makes, becomes three different volumes. So it becomes a very, very large book. Um, so this is from the tractate on divorce. But that's, that's what a page of Talmud looks like. The middle part there um, that's a little bit darker, that's um, the text. All of that on the outside surrounding that is commentary. And then there's even more stuff. They, they talk, somebody, some type A, this is no computers, some type A person went through and said, it's mentioned here, but you can also find it mentioned there, and he put a little notes down there. They don't note where, oftentimes, where the, where the Bible is quoted. 
Somebody went through and put down every chapter, not even the verse, just the chapter. These guys didn't need it. They knew the, they knew the Torah, they knew the Bible by heart. So they just, some people put it in. All of that are notes to be able to, to help. All right, go ahead, one more. So what I gave you was the Mishnah. Here's the Gemara to those same passages. The Gemara exp expresses surprise at the Mishnah statement that one may not eat on Passover Eve from the time that this is adjacent to Minha. Why discuss this halakha, this Jewish law, particularly with regard to the eaves of Passover? Even on the eaves of Shabbat and other festivals, it is also prohibited to eat in the late afternoon as it was taught in a Bariyata, which, forget it, it's just too complicated to explain. A person should not eat on the eaves of Shabbat and festivals from Mincha time on so that he will enter Shabbat when he has a desire to eat and he will enjoy the Shabbat meal. This is the statement of Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yossi says, one may continue eating until dark. So you can see. Go one more. Uh, Rav Huna said the Mishnah was necessarily only according to the opinion of Rabbi Yossi, who said that one may continue eating until dark. According to his opinion, the Mishnah is necessary to emphasize that this applies only on the eaves of Shabbat and festivals. But on the eaves of Passover, due to the obligation to eat matzah, Rabbi Yossi concedes that one must refrain from eating in the afternoon so that we eat matzah with a good appetite. So that is part of the discussion. This is, these are the individuals. You're gonna see from Rabbi Spitzer about Hillel and Shammai and the schools of Hillel and Shammai, I presume he's gonna talk about, which continue. This morning in my passage was a big debate between Hillel and Shammai. What was it about? Give me a second. It was about, oh, what can you carry into public on, the e on, on a festival? Because according to Jewish law, you're not allowed to carry on a holy day. So there are, these two schools are arguing about what are you allowed to carry into, into public? And they cite three things, which is where the debate is. And they say, a child, a lulav, and a child, a lulav, and I'm forgetting the other one. A child, because you may be bringing him to for his circumcision, a lulav, which is part of the festival of Sukkot, and I'm forgetting what the third part is. And they argue this back and forth for the entire, the entire page, these two houses. You might think that this is trivial, but this is how these guys, the ones, and I, we, I get all of those names up there, we could go back, all of them contributed to the life of Jewish life today. These are our heroes. These are the ones we talk about. Most of my congregation is oblivious, but the rabbis and the students, they know who these people are. And even if they don't know everyone, they revere the fact that they took the time to try and create a Judaism that didn't exist out of something of the temple that existed before. All right, so we'll stop there and see if you guys have a few questions, because I would hate to keep you from worship. Not, not really. <laughs> <coughs> So I'm curious, did, because uh, I have the impression that there remain many, many views on these subjects, or was there a resolution? <laughs> you gotta be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Once in a while, they actually come to a resolution, and they'll say, this is what we do. Most of the time, you have minority opinions and majority opinions, but you do get a sense, if you read these pages over and over again, um, that this is what we're, this is the way that it's supposed to be done. A thousand years later. So the Talmud is finished around the 600, oh, 
There are two Talmuds. God forbid we should only have one. There's the Jerusalem Talmud that was put together around the 400s and the Babylonian Talmud around the 600s. The bottom line is nobody reads the Jerusalem Talmud except for scholars. The Babylonian one is the one we have. Even the Babylonian Talmud, which was first print, was one of the first books that was printed uh, when we had the printing press, um, it has, you can find v sometimes various versions of little parts of it because it wasn't so, so set. But around 1600 or so, there was uh, an individual who tried to be able to, uh, Joseph Carroll was his name, to bring resolution to these laws. This is how you're, what you're supposed to do. He doesn't go into a lot of depth behind it, but he's looking through the Talmud and all of the commentaries to be able to figure it all out. But in the Talmud itself, they don't always bring resolution. Other questions? The interesting thing is that even though we're focused on this time period, I could go on and point out rabbis from all of the generations who we look back on. The rabbis who helped create the prayer book the rabbis who helped create that table of Jewish law, the rabbis who, who do something called responsa, answer questions about Jewish law. Sort of the example that I give, is this chicken Jewish? You know, can, is it kosher? Can I eat it? Or my favorite one, can you open a refrigerator on Shabbat? What's the problem? What happens when you open a refrigerator? What do you, the light comes on, and you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to turn on lights if you're observing. There's a whole reasoning behind that. But I can guarantee you that I'm not sure that the light ever goes off because I've never actually stayed inside the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. So before 70 AD, uh -huh. what was the teacher of the law called, if not rabbi? Oh, um, they were just called by their names. These were the age of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would just be called like Hillel and Shammai. So they didn't have, closest probably one was Rabban because that's, you get Rabban Gamaliel, but not rabbi. That comes about a little bit later. But two sections, the um, Sadducees and Pharisees? Fa Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees really didn't care much for this whole conversation about Mishnah and stuff. It seems to be more the Pharisees, but you know, when the temple's destroyed, you never hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees again. We think the Pharisees may have sort of morphed into the rabbinic class, but there's no guarantee. We have no definitive proof of that. Sort of like, you know, when was the last person from the Whig party that you met? <laughs> you know, things come and things go. Wonderful. Any other questions? I know that was a lot to absorb and the smart rabbis will be able to distill this down for you. <laughs> well, Rabbi Adlin, uh, thank you so much for coming. Can we give a, a round of applause? <laughs> This was, this was uh, I know a lot of information, and I'm, I've been learning a lot about this stuff in the last few years, and I still feel like I learned a lot today. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, like, oh my goodness, I was drinking, you know, trying to take a sip from a, a fire hose, I'm sure you're not alone. There's a lot here. I'll just put it into context that just as, as uh, Rabbi Adlin's here today to talk about how Judaism changed over, you know, when the destruction of the first temple, there were still changes, right? Had to build a second temple, then the second temple, then rab rabbinic Judaism started. So in Christianity, every 500 years or so, the church has to reinvent how we're doing things. You saw that in the medieval era. You saw that at the Reformation. And who was there? How did those, those innovators think? 
what do we do now? Something wasn't working. Some, the, the, literally, the building is gone. We can't do, the, do this anymore like we used to. How do we move on? So more to come in the coming weeks. Next week, just as a reminder, next week I'll be giving an introduction, kind of talking about the whole class. Rabbi, We hope Rabbi Spitzer will be here the following week, Rabbi Komarovsky the week after that. So uh, again, thank you for being here. Worship starts in a couple, uh, 15 minutes or so. So let us give one more round of applause to Rabbi Adler. Thank you so much. Can I, can I tell you t two things that I've learned recently? So when I retired in 2019, they named me emeritus. So both Rabbi Switzer and I are emeritus. So I've learned two things. One is that on the morning of the evening of Rosh Hashanah, that when somebody calls me to go play golf, I can do that. <laughs> and that I was, I'm asked to give the sermon on Yom Kippur morning, it's half the length that it used to be. Because <laughs> nobody, can, nobody can say anything. They can't, can't fire me anymore. <laughs>